Good evening and welcome to our Sunday evening service. Um, for a little devotional, let's turn to uh, Numbers 22. And tonight our theme is uh, lessons, uh, lessons learned from the miracles of Jesus. And I was thinking of miracles and I was thinking of some miracles that happened back in the Old Testament. And one kept jumping out at me, and it's the miracle of Balaam's donkey talking. One of the only donkey, uh, one of the only animals that ever talked in the Bible, besides the serpent in the garden. And this donkey got his mouth opened by, by uh, the Lord, and it wasn't Satan inside him like it was in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> so, um, just a little. I'm not going to read this all because it gets kind of long, and it's kind of same, same. But uh, so the the three or four main characters here are Balak, the king of Moab, and the children of Israel. And the children of Israel were uh, getting close to Moab, and Bay ba- Balak was getting kind of scared of them, and the people were too. So they sent off for this uh, man named Balaam, and there isn't really much information about him other than this guy could make stuff happen. They went down there and they wanted him to uh, do some divinations and curse these people of, people of Israel. And so they sent down some, some men and obviously some money. And uh, Balaam was like, well, I gotta go ask God. And nowhere in here does it say that Balaam was a man of God. He just, for some reason, he could talk to God and hear what God was saying. And so he went and asked God, and God, of course, told him no. But so Balaam sent these guys, these guys back to their homeland. And uh, Balak was still pretty uh, worked up about all these Israelites camped close by. So he, uh, he sent more guys, and more money. And uh, uh, Balaam was like, well, even if uh, Balak gave me almost all his gold and his whole palace, I still could only do what God tells me. And then he says in uh, verse, verse 19, he says, but I pray you, Tarry ye here also this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. And there we can see Balaam start to turn. He's starting to think about all this money and all this cool stuff he can get. And and now he's trying to push God. And God comes to him again. And Balaam is really pleading with him to let him go do this because he wants all that money. And God says, all right, fine. See you later. Go with them, but you're only going to get to do what I, you're only going to get to say what I tell you to. And uh, so Balaam gets on his donkey the next morning and off they go. And his donkey just acts out of character. He runs off into a, a field. So Balaam hits him. And then he crushes Balaam's foot into this wall. And obviously that hurts. So he hit him again. And then a little while later, his donkey just laid down. And 
obviously he probably laid down on his feet, on Balaam's feet. So Balaam got really mad and really hit him. And then this miracle happens. And it says that uh, in verse 28, And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten smitten me these three times? And I find it incredible that Balaam just uh, uh, talks back to his donkey. He doesn't freak out. He just says, you've mocked me. And if I had a sword, I would kill you. This donkey is talking to this man, and he doesn't even bat an eye. I don't know what was wrong with him. But if I had a talking donkey, I would really freak out. And um, his donkey goes on to tell him that... uh, I have never done anything like like this to you ever before, have I? And um, Balaam answered back and said, no. And then Balaam's eyes were open, and he saw the angel of the Lord, and um, and the angel of the Lord kind of went through the same thing that uh, the donkey had said, and he said that if his donkey had, wouldn't have had his eyes open... Um, Balaam would probably be dead because he would have, the angel of the Lord would have killed him. And the angel, and Balaam sees the errors of his ways, or so it looks, because he says, well, I won't go if, if that's what you want me to do. Even though back at the first time he had talked to God, God had told him that he shouldn't go, and now he was still going. And he, and Balaam said, uh, well, I won't go, but the angel of the Lord says, go, but remember, everything you say is I'm going to put in your mouth. And so, Balaam, off he went. And we know the rest of the story there where, where Balaam tries to curse the people of Israel, and I think it's about three or four times he, he blesses them, and, and uh, Balak, the, the king of Moab, gets really, really mad at him. But eventually, Balaam... Uh, causes the people of Israel to sin. But going to uh, 2 Peter 2, 15 and uh, 16, we see uh, here in 2 Peter uh, 2, Peter is talking about uh, false teachers and what to look for in some of them. And he, and he brings up this guy named Balaam in this passage about false teachers. And he says in verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bezorah, who loved the wages of unrighteousness and was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb donkey speaking the man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. And that's about all we ever hear again about Balaam's donkey having more sense than Balaam himself and and telling a uh, a greedy false prophet false teacher uh, yeah he was basically saved his life and I hope that um, as we go through life we don't get greedy and uh, and have our eyes so focused on all the the money or the um, other things in life that we're trying to get that we uh, you know miss the fact that the, a donkey, you know, something incredible, a miracle like this, and we still miss the fact. It doesn't, Balaam never really freaks out about his 
his donkey. And that's incredible that God went to that, you know, opened the mouth of a donkey to, to tell this guy not to do something, and he still did it anyway. So let's not miss the sign from God when we're you know, trying so hard to do what, what we want to do. Um, let's have a word of prayer. God, thank you for another Sunday, and thank you that we can come to church this evening and uh, worship you and hear um, several other people talk and speak from your word. I pray that we could um, learn a lot here tonight and be blessed. Just bless the others that are talking. Give them the words to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, for an order of our service, we're going to have a children's class next, and Nikki King will be having that. And then we're going to have uh, three topics, one by uh, C.J. Lapp, one by Michael Stolsus, and one by Sam Kaufman. And we'll be doing it in that order. So after Nikki, C.J., you can just come up. And then after C.J., Michael, come up. And Sam, after Michael. So uh, how about all the children come up? And there's plenty of room in the front two benches here. And we'll uh, have Nikki come up and have children's class. So, I brought two things with me here tonight. Anybody tell me what this one, this is? Yes. $20. $20. Can anybody tell me what this is? Yes? Sure. $20. $20. All right. So, we all agree these are worth exactly the same, correct? All right. So, this one, I'm going to start ripping up. looking so good anymore. All right. Which one would you rather have at this point? This one? This one's still looking nice. This one, not so much. But guess what? Which one is worth more? Anybody? Yes. They're worth exactly the same, right? No matter how they look. This one is still worth exactly the same. That's this real nice one. Can anybody tell me why that is? It doesn't matter how money looks. It's money. It's worth exactly the same. In the Bible, we're told that we have value. Uh, it's, we're told that God values every little sparrow that falls. And if he values every little sparrow that falls, how much more can he value each one of you as a human being, as a special human being? Doesn't matter how you look, doesn't matter what you do. Maybe you lie to your parents, you 
hit your brother. You what do you do? You steal something. That maybe makes you feel ugly. You regret it. That makes you feel ugly and messed up, maybe a little ripped up. But in the end, you're still of the same value to God either way. No matter if you look like this crumpled up piece of trash here or this beautiful $20 bill. You're of the exact same value to God. God values you a lot as his children. So this week, as you're helping around the house, as you're oh playing, whatever you do in the summer, staying busy, remember that no matter how, much, how you might feel about yourself, you still have value to God, whether you feel like maybe you're really messed up and you think that nobody can love you. God can, no matter how much you're messed up, no matter how bad you look. God still loves you as much as this one is worth $20, like this one. Thank you. You can go back to your parents. Good evening. Um, Thanks for coming out this evening. Um, Tonight we're going to look at the parable, or no, sorry, miracle in Luke chapter 7. It's the story of the centurion's servant, so you can turn there. I'm going to read that. Um, I was really blessed while I was studying that passage. Um, It's a really interesting passage, and it's so much more real to me now since I've studied it and looked into it. So I'm glad for this opportunity to to be able to... um, uh, speak here this evening. Um, so, Luke 7, verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when, he, and when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and he was servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy <clears throat> for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was not now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned him about, and said unto the, unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Um, so I just want to give a little background to this passage. Um, this, this passage here, uh, this miracle here happened right after the um, Sermon on the Mount. Um, it was, took place in Capernaum, uh, which, is a, which is basically a city right underneath the Sermon on the Mount, um, right beside it, kind of. Um, and the Capernaum is located on the north um, part of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and so basically, Jesus uh, walked down 
to the city after he had given the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and one thing that's really interesting about this passage is that this passage here, this centurion here, is um, kind of a living example to what Christ or to what Christ was preaching here on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you look at his story really well and look at um, some of the things he did. Um, and so I want to give just a little bit of a history of centurions. Um, centurions were Roman soldiers that you would probably compare to a captain in today's military, U.S. military. Um, they were controlled around 100 soldiers, um, obviously sentries and um, 100. Um, right around 100, it often varied a little bit from there. Um, and basically their job was to maintain peace and to collect taxes. So they weren't the type of people that you would like. I mean, who likes paying taxes, right? Um, I know that's not very fun to do. But um, So centurions were kind of looked down upon, but they were also, um, they also had to fight a lot for their position that they had. They were often very battle-tested um, soldiers. Um, they definitely worked hard to get there, um, to get to becoming a centurion. Um, and this centurion is actually um, probably not a Roman. Um, he's obviously a Roman centurion, but he's probably not from Italy. Um, actually, his most likely heritage is actually, uh, he's probably a Samaritan because a lot of the soldiers in that region were Samaritans. So it's most likely that he's a Samaritan. Maybe not, but it's, it's um, very possible that he was a Samaritan. Um, and, of course, the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. So um, just adds another um, in- interesting fact here about the centurion. Um, there's three centurions mentioned in Scripture that recognize Christ as the Son of God. Um, and so, first of all, uh, this here centurion recognized Christ as Lord. And also in Luke 23, verse 47, um, it talks about where the centurion, um, he was there at the cross. Um, and it says, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Um, and also in Acts 10, the centurion Cornelius was the first known Gentile to accept faith in Christ. Um, and up there's Peter. After he had his vision, he went to the um, centurion Cornelius. Um, There are many special traits about the centurion, if you really look into um, this passage here. Uh, The centurion was, he was, he cared a lot for his servant, which is something that's very different, because in this time, servants were simply property. They weren't worth much. They were basically, they were basically a tool that you had. Um, They were property, really. Um, They were often just prisoners of war, or just simply a young boy from, a country, uh, just that was just basically born as a slave. Um, so this it's also um, likely this young servant. You know, most most centurions didn't really care about their their servants. The normal thing to do in this situation would have been just probably to kill the centurion. He's or kill the centurion's servant there because he's not worth anything if he's injured like that or hurt like that. Um, so it's very unique that this centurion actually cared about his servant as much as he did. Um, and he also loved his. He also loved the nation that he was governing. Um, you see in verse five there it says, "For he loveth our nation." Um, that's not a very common thing for a centurion to do. Um, he says he built them a synagogue. Um, pretty sure that was a rare thing for a centurion to do. Um, so he really cared about the the people he was governing, um, and. 
he was definitely a God-fearing man. You can tell that just by, just by who he is here. Um, and it's kind of interesting, if you look at some of the other centurions, especially the centurion Cornelius, he was um, very clearly a God-fearing man. Um, you see that he fasted even before he would have, um, even before he would have met Peter. And also, of course, the centurion that um, crucified Jesus, he was able to recognize who Jesus was. So it's just kind of interesting there, these centurions that were looked down upon, that the Jews hated. Um, a lot of them were, um, a lot of them recognized who Christ was. Um, I think this, the greatest thing about this centurion is he was an incredibly humble man for the position of authority that he was in. Um, if, if I would be as accomplished as this centurion was, I mean, he had to fight to become this type of, it wasn't hard to become, it was, it was hard to become a centurion. And so for him to be as humble as he was for the position of authority that he was in was pretty incredible. So for now, I just want to give a, a brief overview of the passage, just discuss some of the things in here. Um, and this first one, it says, now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of people, he entered into Capernaum. So just, just like I said there earlier, he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and then he went um, down into the city. And then it talks a little about this, about the centurion's servant who was dear unto him. So it just shows there that the centurion really loved his servant, um, a very untypical thing for a centurion to do. <clears throat> and it says he was sick and ready to die. And in Matthew 8, uh, which is kind of parallel to this, passage here, it says that he was, um, had some kind of paralyzed disease or something, and he was suffering terribly, it also says. So it was a, he was in agony, this servant was, and so the centurion cared for him and decided to try to send for Christ, send to, um, send to find Jesus. Verse 3, the first phrase there, it says, and when he heard of Jesus, um, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews. Um, and if you really think about this, and when he heard of Jesus, um, it's likely that there was some man who told the centurion about who Christ was and told him like the type of person that he was because in verse 6 he calls him Lord um, which is not what a centurion would normally do to just any Jewish person. He called him Lord. That kind of recognizes, just there it kind of recognizes who Christ is. Um, and so there's, you could probably think that there was some kind of witness of Christ to this centurion. Um, which is kind of interesting, that there was probably a person who witnessed to this centurion about who Christ was. Um, and he says, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews. Um, in Matthew, it says the centurion was sent, but um, it was likely just Matthew, just the way he said, said that passage, um, just the way he would normally talk about the miracles. He usually made it a little more brief, um, and it's... Um, the centurion did not go in person to Jesus. He sent these elders of the Jews, as it says here, um, beseeching him that he would come and he was servant. Um, and so when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. So it's interesting here that these elders of the Jews, they had a lot of respect for this centurion. Um, they realized he was a godly man. They had, he had built, him a, built them a synagogue. So it says, therefore, he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. So they really, um, they, they um, really liked the centurion there that they had, which is something a little different, pretty uncommon. Um, and the Jews were a pretty rebellious people. It's not very normal for them to get along like they did here in this passage. There was a lot of fighting. Um, you know, talk about the zealots and all that that were in that region that fought against the um, Romans. Um, the Jews did not like the Romans at all. Um, they hated the idea of being under Gentile control. 
Um, but here, it says that they did count their centurion worthy for whom he should do this. Um, another thing that's interesting here is um, Jesus didn't show any sign of hesitation. It says in verse 6 that then Jesus went with them. Um, he didn't so- show any sign of hesitation to going with this centurion servant, or going with his, um, these men that the centurion sent to him. Um, and it says, then Jesus went with them, when, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him. Um, so he didn't, want, he didn't want Jesus to come to his house. Um, and you'll see here why, and what he says, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. And that, that there passage is really powerful. Um, the centurion realized that he was not worthy to have Christ um, come to his house. Um, there's some things with, like, the Jewish law, that come into effect there because um, I think uh, they didn't like to enter, enter into the house of Gentiles and some different things like that. I'm not sure how that all worked. But, um, and then verse 7 says, Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Just the faith that this centurion um, had is really incredible. Um, he recognized himself as unworthy to what Christ, to who Christ was, um, he was able to humble himself and say that to a random Jewish preacher. It's pretty incredible. Um, and just the faith he had, but saying a word, and my servant shall be healed. I love how he says, and my servant shall be healed. Like, he didn't say, like, and maybe my servant will be healed. He knew that Jesus would heal him. Somehow he knew that Jesus was going to heal him if he just says the word. Just incredible faith that he had there. Um, then he talks about a little bit who the centurion was. For I also am a man set under authority. Um, he was under a lot of authority. Um, he was probably under the control. Uh, he was probably under like Herod Antipas, I think it was, in that Galilee region. So he was under authority. Um, having under me soldiers. Um, he had a lot of soldiers under him, probably around 100 soldiers under him, plus many servants. Um, it says, And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant do this, and he doeth it. Um, and when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And that phrase there, he marveled at him. This is the only time that Jesus ever marveled at somebody's faith in the Gospels. The only time that Jesus ever marveled at somebody's faith. Um, Jesus often, he marveled at people's unbelief several times. This is the only time he ever marveled at somebody's faith. And yeah, just kind of um, kind of a lesson there for us. Um, does Christ ever marvel at our faith? Because um, it does say, it just kind of shows the humanness of Christ too. Christ marveled at this man's faith. Um, and he turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Um, that was probably a pretty humiliating thing for him to say to um, the Jews that were following him. Um, and it says, verse 10, And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Um, and sure enough, he was healed. Um, and Jesus didn't really even, doesn't say here that he even like said anything about telling him that he's going to be healed. He just said, I'm not found so great faith. And um, sure enough, he was healed. So I'm going to give some lessons from this passage. And the first lesson is, um, I just give some lessons from the life of the centurion um, and the way he was um, kind of an example of, of this um, Sermon on the Mount, a living example of the Sermon on the Mount. 
Um, the first way is simply the centurion, the way he loved the Jewish city of Capernaum. Um, Capernaum was just a small, pretty small city, um, 1,500 people. Um, it had like fishing and some agriculture there in that region, pretty small city. Um, but the way he loved them and put his time into them is pretty incredible. And just kind of, just like this passage shows um, in Luke 6 and, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it talks a lot about love. And um, he went out of his way to um, put time and love into this um, Jewish city. And another thing is the way he loved his servant. Um, talks about here in Luke 7, or Luke 6, sorry, uh, talk about the Sermon on the Mount there. Verse 35, it says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is, a, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And he, he put into practice um, this Sermon on the Mount. It's just kind of interesting how he did that. Um, and this servant really didn't do much, a whole lot for him, because he could have just gotten a new servant, no problem. Um, but he was able to go out of his way to help this servant out, um, which is really incredible. It just kind of shows an um, example there of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, another thing is he called Christ Lord. Uh, like I said there in verse 6, he called Christ Lord. And he probably, you know, he probably never even may, may have never met Christ. Um, even in this passage, it doesn't say he ever met Christ. I mean, he may have some other time, you know, very likely. But... Um, he was able to humble himself enough to call Christ Lord, and for the type of man that he was, um, for him to call Christ Lord like that is really impressive. This man worked hard for his position, um, and you know, he had a pretty bloody job too. He probably killed a lot of people in his life. He was, he was a Roman soldier, an experienced Roman soldier. He wasn't your typical person that you would think of to, for Christ to marvel at because of his faith. Um, and you also the lesson from Christ is that Christ showed no signs of hesitation in helping a Roman centurion. Um, a Gentile, Christ showed no, no signs of hesitation in helping someone like him. Um, that's just a challenge for us that no matter who we are, Christ can't help us. Um, the power of Christ to heal someone by only speaking a word, that's just really incredible that Christ could actually do that. This is, um, this is one of, like, this is such an interesting passage because um, it really doesn't talk too much about the miracle here. You almost, if you're reading through this, you almost kind of forget that there was actually a miracle that happened here um, because the faith of this centurion stands out so much. But you see this miracle that happened, and it's really an incredible miracle that actually happened here. Um, it's that Christ spoke a word and he was healed. Uh, it just kind of reminds you of creation. Um, God spoke um, this world into existence, and all Christ had to do was speak, and a man would be healed. Um, just... Shows the power of Christ there on this earth. Um, and an interesting point to make, just like I said, is that this passage it revolves around the faith of Centurion um, and not more around this miracle. Um, most of these verses are about how the Centurion's faith was so incredible. And that, yeah. I want to read in Matthew eleven twenty three 23 to 24, it talks about Capernaum um, after they were, uh, Capernaum, uh, this is when Jesus condemned condemned the city. Um, and Capernaum, uh, you know, they had all these miracles that they saw, and yet we don't really hear too much about the city, the rest in Acts and that type of thing. Um, I don't know if we hear anything at all, but 
and it says, and you Capernaum, and you Capernaum, will, we, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had, be, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Um, and that, that there is actually a really powerful statement that it makes there. Um, Sodom today, you can kind of refer to that as homosexuals. Um, there were a lot of homosexuals in Sodom. You know, they tried to rape the angels that came to Lot. And, um, but it says there that Sodom would have repented if they had the miracles if they had seen the miracles that Christ had done, um, they would have repented. And I think that can be a big lesson for us, too, because we have, we have received so many teachings. We have, um, so many op- we have so many good sermons to listen to, um, just like the sermon we had this morning. That was a really awesome sermon. I really enjoyed that, John. And um, there's so many opportunities we have to see God work. Um, and if we miss those opportunities, I think that's really dangerous for us. And just like it says here, I believe we'll be judged even more than the people of Sodom were judged in the day of judgment, like it says here. Um, so, yeah, just, to, just to, so important for us to make sure that we are right with God. Because we have all this teaching, and I think God will, will judge us harder, judge us on a harder scale if we don't have our faith in Christ, because we have been given so much. We've been given so much. Um, so yeah that's everything I have for this evening um, thanks for listening um, and I just really thanks for the opportunity to um, speak here because I really enjoyed this studying this passage um, so yeah thanks for everything good evening I found that fascinating, CD, CJ. I'm not sure that I remember ever, ever the key focus of a story being the person asking for healing. Generally, it's you know the other people, the person that got healed. Um, okay, a couple of points that I'd like to persuade you in. Um, we'll just kind of keep this in our backdrop and consider these two points as we look at uh, the story I'm coming to. Um, the first point is, but God is a God of order. He, he, he does things in order. We could even almost say that God is a God. Well, we know that God is a, desi- is a God of design. But you could even say that God is a God of strategy, okay? Um, he he kind of sets stuff up. Um, so God is a God of order, design, and seemingly strategy. The second point is that, God, that Jesus and God, of course, have a lot of compassion for those they love, or he loves, and he really cares about the details of our spiritual health. Um, so, so a couple questions. So what do we think? So, so what's your thoughts? How did, how did you wind up here? Let's think about it. No, that's not just a blank question. How did you wind up here tonight at this place? Okay. Um, how is it that we are with this specific part of God's body of believers. Now, I'm not going to get all hypothetical about Weavertown. That's not what this is about. I'm saying, why are you here sitting beside who you're sitting beside? Married to who you're married with, maybe? Your parents, many other things like that. Um, how is it that the Bible study group or friend group that you are a part of, how, how, is it, how did that come about? Um, 
think about it a little bit. Um, how many different groups of friends or Bible studies have you been part of in the last 10 years? And why aren't you still part of the first one you were with? Very likely, I would venture to say that probably half of you aren't at the same place or with the same people you were, maybe even as little as five years ago. And I'm not talking about it leaving the Amish. I'm just saying how God kind of nudges you along. Um, this is, I'm going to lose some of you here. But, so who were our friends and who was our peer group in about 20 years ago? Okay, So that was about 1998. So. And then how did God do all that stuff, really? Um, just saying, I was an Amish father of about three children at that point just starting the job for quality fencing, um, this is way back when. At that point, we were considering to move on the same farm of a team Mennonite family, which we, of course, enjoyed and learned a lot from. So jumping ahead a little bit, what about five years or ten years ago, and how did that all come about? Um, now, now, okay, so, so that's a little bit of a backdrop. Now think a bit more. So what happens in your mind when somebody says, Wow, that was lucky. That was lucky. Huh. Wow. Yikes. Um, or that just happened. One day I, I, I had this little comment I was saying, and I said, you know, that just happened. He said, wait a minute. That just happened. So you're really convinced. Poof, and God put you right here because it's not really. Well, maybe you don't even think God put you here. I think he did. Um, so let me, let me just suggest that I don't believe in luck. In fact, it's kind of tough sometimes. You're saying, wow, that was lucky. I'll challenge you to not say that, okay? Every time you say lucky, just remember, wait a minute. Did God do that or did this just like the evolution of poof and something happened? Wow. Okay. Uh, you can turn to John's 11. That's going to be the main thrust of the um, topic here. We want to look at the story of how it went with when Lazarus was sick and all the drama of how Jesus seemingly just loafed around for a little while while he died, and, and then we want to look at his compassion for the family of, of Lazarus while knowing that he was going to heal him in the end. Anyway, uh, it's really fascinating to me how the whole drama plays out. And yes, we can say drama, or you can say strategy, or maybe some of you prefer thriller, I'm not quite sure, of how this all, if you dissect it, how this all happens. Uh, with the whole group, We'll get into that, but there was a lot of people affected here, going through a whole lot of very real emotions and experiences in their life while Jesus was teaching the whole group more about himself, really. Okay? So, John 11, verse 1, we're going to skip through this a little bit and I'll make a bunch of applications as we go. Um, now, there was a certain man, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town where Mary and her sister Martha were. And this was a Mary that had anointed the Lord with ointment, and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was now sick. Okay, so he, he knew these people. Um, and therefore, so Lazarus is sick, and, and his sisters are concerned, and they sent for Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, if we go back to CJ's illustration, why didn't Jesus just say, oh, he's healed. Okay, done. I mean, he was an important person, right? Jesus had three years on this earth, he was going to wipe through here and teach a whole lot of people practical applications for the rest of life, right? So he should have just, hypothetically, we could say, why didn't he just say, oh, Lazarus is healed now? Mm -mm, that's not the deal. Um, 
See, I believe that Jesus, in many cases, including the case of the centurion, it was about the centurion, it was about the servant, and in this case, it was about Lazarus. But I don't think that was the ultimate goal. I think the ultimate goal was that it was a teaching tool to teach and bring a whole lot of people to a real relationship with Christ. Okay. Um, now, remember again that this is someone that Jesus knew, and, and many people knew that Jesus knew this Lazarus guy, okay? It wasn't just some, some guy that he bumped into and like, oh, wow, this guy's sick, you know, let's, or maybe the guy that they dropped in from the roof and all this kind of thing. Um, so John eleven four. when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death. So he's already saying, well, this guy isn't going to die. Uh, sort of. People didn't get it, of course. But for the glory of God. Really. So Lazarus was sick for the glory of God, okay? That the Son of, my, of God might be glorified thereby. Well, that seems kind of clear to us, but it seemed, I don't think they got it. I don't think I would have got it either. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, what's up with this? This is an emergency. Beepers, lights, sirens, blinkers, and what all the pagers usually do when they go off, you know? Because this guy was dying, and Jesus knew he was going to die. I mean, it's not like you guys go out in a fire call and you hypothetically think you can help somebody. Jesus knew that he was going to die. But he played along anyway. I think God does that a lot, actually. Um, where he plays along and for our good, I will say. Then after that, he says to his disciples, after two days, okay, ah, let's go to Judea now. Okay, okay. Um, Let me see here. These things said he, and after, this is verse 11, after he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of his sleep. Again, he's kind of telling him, look, this guy's not going to die. He, he's, everything's going to be all right. And he's kind of saying, look, I'm going I'm to raise him up. Um, I'm not sure if Jesus had raised anybody from the dead up until this point or not. I, I don't think so. Can anybody help me out on that? I doubt it. Um, so then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he had, he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Look, Lazarus is dead, he didn't say. And I am glad, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. See, this is kind of strategy now. Now he's really stretching him. He's, he's really saying that, I'm glad I wasn't there because now he's dead and, and, and you know, that's because you guys need to believe a little bit. Or, but, but anyhow, let's go see him now. Uh, notice, of course, that this was, um, seemingly this whole project was to strengthen not only their, theirs, and we'll see many, the Jews, and, but even us today to strengthen them and our faith. Now think about the times, and, and just think and wonder a little bit about the times when we're in the middle of tough situations, and consider for a moment how many little steps of that take us through real emotion trains. Um, for instance, um, let's, just, let's just suppose most of us at some point have had a near miss, where, all, where it seems like we're really, really going to wreck. This is really not going to end well. Um, 
So in this hypothetical story, let's just consider that maybe we've almost had an accident. Like, like I'm talking about really almost, um, but not quite. Now consider how that sense of emotions and all that drama, um, or maybe you've had an accident, or maybe something has happened, and, and consider how, especially in the not quite accident, how that makes us think differently about how we maybe value our wife, maybe our children. Oh, I've really got to teach my children. My goodness, this is time's wasting, okay? And I, I'm not, I think God does that sometimes to, to teach us. Now, God's not just out there prodding us, okay? God loves us. God chastens those that he loves, he even saves. But notice how it makes us think differently about how we value our life, our family. Maybe we reconsider how we tell the loved ones we value them. And, and even reconsider our priorities. Many times when someone almost dies or falls real far and is okay after all, um, uh, generally speaking, or even maybe a friend dies, work is about the least important thing that even can happen. You're just like, wow. Okay? But so here Jesus, now he's going on his way back. Um, then, then here we are in verse 17. Then when Jesus, he found that he had lain in the grave for four days. So Lazarus, this is four days now, okay? Um, and, and, and we all know that in CJ's story, Jesus could have just said, well, just, he's healed now. But of course, that wasn't the way, Jesus, that wasn't the best for everyone. And of course, I mean, of course, Jesus knew this all along. But remember, there was a greater benefit that he was planning to teach. Then in verse 19, and many of the Jews came to, Mar to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Now this is, of course, common even in our days. The Amish are especially good at this when someone dies. And I think we do it very well here, too. I mean, friends and all kinds of people, including people that don't necessarily come to this church, and in many cases, even secular people or people that don't even believe. So here are many Jews. Now, now so, so see how this drama is starting to unfold? I mean, here you got Lazarus, you got Martha and Mary, they're affected. And Jesus is over wherever it was, and they'd send us uh, a messenger. But now you got all kinds of Jews coming in. You got the mourners and the whole team coming in, um, and this is affecting everyone there. Okay, so Jesus is seemingly setting this thing up for a climax coming up. And so, so here's Jesus is coming, and then Martha in verse twenty. Uh, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out and meets him. And Martha said, "Jesus, Lord." If I had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Okay, so hopefully you guys all love your brothers and your sisters. But in many families, many, many, many times, one brother said, Duh, I mean, why weren't you here? I mean, seriously, what were you trying to do? I mean, this was my brother, and he died. If you would have been here, um, he wouldn't have died, verse 21. But I know that even now, so she's going further than that because of her faith. But she says to Jesus, but I know that even now, whatsoever thou asked of God, God's going to do it for you. And Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. But Martha kind of misunderstood. She said, oh, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. We could go on a whole bunny trail on how Jesus is a resurrection, but I guess we won't tonight for the sake of time. Jesus continues, and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? And she was still not quite getting it. She said unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art Christ, the Son of God, which shall come unto the world. See how was, Jesus was setting this up for some teaching moment? 
I'm guessing that Martha wasn't the only person that was hearing this, but he was also testing her faith. And see, now, now continuing on, we're going to see how he has a different, a different but very personal reaction when he meets Mary. See, I'm on the persuasion that, that, that Jesus speaks differently to um, myself, maybe, or, or my experience is trif a trifle different, maybe, in how God teaches me, maybe, than he does um, you, because God speaks in your specific language. I mean, I don't, I don't cut up meat, I don't um, uh, make quilts, I don't sell quilts, even. But um, sometimes God uses even that to reach people. Not only that, he sometimes uses that to teach us lessons. And I know um, Brandon says the donkey is the only thing that ever talked, and that's in fact true because he did verbally speak. But I think that quilts and making eggs in the morning and, and coffee in the morning, many other things, there's just different ways that we serve and are taught by, uh, maybe not verbally, okay? So I'm not saying coffee talks, okay? That's not what I said. I'm just saying God speaks to us in ways that we understand. Um, so here he is in verse 28, um, and now he's talking to Mary, which is a bit different than Martha. And when she had said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister secretly saying, the master has come, and he calleth for thee. Okay, this is Martha talking to Mary. And as soon as Mary heard that, she arose quickly and came to Jesus. Now Jesus was not yet come into town, but was in that place where Martha met him. The Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her, when they saw Mary, they rose up, she rose up hastily and went out. And of course, the Jews followed her. They see the commotion and the whole troop follows after her. And she goeth on to the grave to weep. Oh, wait a minute, they didn't quite come up. Then when Mary had come where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down on his feet, saying, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. So one thing the two girls had in common is they, they knew that Jesus, that he wouldn't have died if Jesus wouldn't have been there. I mean, obviously, Jesus had healed a lot of people up until that point, I think. Now, now, catch the next little happening here. This is kind of touching. Just know, though, while we're reading this, that Jesus knew he's going to heal him. Lazarus is going to walk, okay? But just, just reflect a little bit on the character and heart of Jesus and the empathy that he has even for us today, okay? Um, when Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, okay? So Jesus sees Mary weeping, and he understands this is, this is real anguish, okay? Uh, and the Jews also were weeping, which came with her. So you got Mary and a whole bunch of Jews that were weeping, and this is really rough for them. And he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Okay, why was Jesus troubled? He knew he's going to heal him. He was just coming right up. And Jesus said, where have you laid him? And she said unto him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. What did Jesus weep? Because he had compassion, right? And, and, and it's not some feel-good thing where, oh, wow, Jesus serves me and all this kind of stuff. No, Jesus has compassion for us. I don't know that I have quite that much compassion even for those around me sometimes. And then said the Jews, behold. See, this was a teaching moment. I mean, we had a situation at work the other day, and one of our chief HR uh, person basically cried to me, and he said, we really hurt someone. Okay? So I'm, I'm trying to get the empathy here. Um, so Jesus, um, the Jews, which might have been unbelievers, see like, wow, Jesus really loved Lazarus, okay? And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind? See, here even the Jews and the other people are saying, well, surely he could have healed him. Um, so, so now we see how everyone's getting emotionally involved, okay? So, so remember, what I'm trying to get here is 
the difference in how Jesus set this up and how simple this could have been, but how, in fact, it was a teaching moment that taught hundreds of people a message. Um, so it was a teaching moment that was far beyond the immediate family and is even teaching us today. By the way, when Jesus did a miracle, I think I alluded to this a little bit, but I'll, I'll repeat it. Was it only for that individual or was it for the whole family and even the whole community? And so in verse 38, Jesus again, groaning himself, comes to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay on it. Of course, remember, this is four days in. And so I can understand where the people were like, I don't know what this is going to look like. Wow. Oh, boy. Um, um, so notice how many people were involved in the different aspects of the project and how it must have strengthened all their faith. And, and so... I don't know, maybe this was a stonemason or some big burly guy that liked lifting weights and bragging about how strong he is. I don't know, but this guy, Jesus picked, and he says, take away the stone. Somebody, somebody was there, and somebody was the person that heaved away the stone. And Martha, a sister to him that was said, said to, him, to Jesus, Lord, by this time he's going to stink. I mean, he's been dead for four days. And you could say that she would have been, what do? I mean, this isn't going to be pleasant, right? But no, Jesus said unto her, said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. So Jesus is highlighting here that no, 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 this is, this is, you're going to really see something spectacular here. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, so, so why, did, why, did Father, why did Jesus have to do all this? Um, it even tells us here. But he lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I think, thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hear, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Notice the relationship that Jesus had with with God the Father. But he still, for the people's sake, and, and I think there was a lot of people, he prayed aloud in a way that they would understand and believe for themselves. And and I think you know much of the scriptures is is kind of written in the same way. And when he had thus spoken, um, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And, and we can make all kinds of, of interesting comments about so how did Jesus come out all wrapped up in, in clothes. I mean, he was still wrapped up. We're going to see that real quick here. Um, how how did, did he just like float out or how did this happen? But it really doesn't matter. And he that was dead, this Lazarus, of course, came forth. He was bound hand and foot in graves clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. So um, Jesus said unto him, loose him. And of course, here other people were involved. It's not like Jesus just spoke a word and poof, everything just happened. No, no, no. There was people involved in every, every part of the process here um, for the sake of that individual that needed to believe in that very specific way. And for us today to just see that whole drama unfold. And Jesus said unto him, loose him and let him go. Um, Again, I find it interesting that Jesus went through all these steps in order so that all the people could follow along in the experience. And then, of course, he says to loose him. It be, because in reality, it could have been between Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and nobody in the world would have ever really had to know. But, but that wasn't the point. Um, one, one of the other little stories that I find fascinating... Um, 
in, in light of, of, of one of the miracles affecting hundreds and hundreds of people was the, the two men with the demons. Remember the one where um, he cast the demons into the swine and they fall in the river and, and all this kind of thing. And, and first, you know, the town says, you know, get out of here. Wow, this is traumatic. But in the end of the day, what happened? He told the guys, look, you're going to stay here, okay? You're going to teach these people about who I am and all this kind of thing. And, and by the next time he came, the whole town believed. And, and that's, I'm saying that to say that, to prove, I guess, that Jesus really is serious about reaching groups of people whenever he does whatever he does. Um, so I guess reiterating that I find it just comforting that God is a God of order. And even today, he has things under control. We just need to hang in there. We need to believe. And, and, you know, we usually have this phrase that, wow, it's like the end of the world. Well, in the end of the world, we're going to go to glory. So what's wrong with that? But God is a God of order. He needs us to be here to teach our neighbors, not always by speaking, but by doing. And, of course, secondly, Jesus has a lot of compassion for those like us that he loves and really cares about the details of our spiritual health and our continued well-being. Um, thank you. I wasn't asked to do this, but we've been sitting. Let's stand together and sing one verse of song. <clears throat> For Christ and the church, let our voices raise. Let us honor the name of our own blessed King. Let us work with a will of youth and loyally stand for the kingdom of truth. For Christ, our dear Redeemer, for Christ who died to save, church his blood hath purchased, Lord, make us pure and Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciated the topics, what we heard. I heard a few things that I was going to say, so that means I can maybe shorten up my topic a bit. Thank you, brothers, for that, for what you have shared already. A few months ago, one of the, someone, I forget who, was uh, referred to three kinds of people. <clears throat> and uh, I just thought it'd be, I would like to share something that C.S. Lewis said when I get the opportunity to speak, and so I have the opportunity tonight. There are a lot of funny sayings out there. We're not going to repeat those about the three kinds of people. You probably heard some. But C.S. Lewis said, there are really only two kinds of people. He said, Lewis said, that there are those persons who are willing to bow their knees to God and say, thy will be done. Then there are those persons who are not willing to bow their knees to God, and God says, okay, thy will be done. There are about ten miracles or ten recordings in the Bible about 
raising the dead to life. We heard about a few tonight already, or at least one. There are ten altogether, and I won't go over all those, but there are three that Jesus performed. Three times he raised persons from the dead, and of course he himself raised from the dead. The first one, and Michael asked about the order, and I'm not sure myself which was first here. That's kind of immaterial. But the widow's son in the village of Nain, he raised the widow's son to life. Then there was the daughter of Jairus. We know that story. And also about Lazarus. <clears throat> Turn with me. We'll just look at this one very briefly. Luke 7. We'll go right back to where we were earlier. When CJ read from Luke 7. If you have your Bibles, please turn to verse 11 of chapter 7. I'll read this story, <clears throat> this account. It came to pass, in verse 11, the day after, that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and much people. And Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had, there it is, we heard it before, compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying, That a great prophet, we heard about great Salvation today, here's a great prophet, is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea, throughout all the region round about. So here was Jesus walking to this town, it says here a city, I thought it was a small village, I wasn't in Nain any time, but uh, whether it was a city or not, I don't know. But I think it was probably today a small town, it's close to the Sea of Galilee, about 10 or 15 miles from the sea. And it's close to Nazareth. So this is the area where Jesus would have ministered in his lifetime, at least in those few years he was there. Well, he had a lot of people with him, a whole multitude, and they came to the city. And as they were, they were entering the town, they met this funeral procession coming out of town. And Jesus saw this widow. Now this widow had one son. And remember, probably a few years before this, she would have walked there to bury her husband. And now she's going there to bury, she's going to the cemetery to bury her only son. That's really kind of sad, isn't it? Really a tough situation. Many of us don't realize what widowhood is like. It's, it's or a widower's life. It's very difficult. Many of us have no idea what it's like. Well, here was this widow walking with her dead son and of course the funeral procession. And Jesus saw them, and she had compassion on her. <clears throat> Jesus had compassion many times. And I'm a little bit like Michael. Sometimes we don't have compassion the way we should. I remember recently talking to someone, and this lady said, I really pity her. I don't know what the, I forget the details. I just feel so bad for her. I really pity her. I, and somehow I just didn't have that kind of pity. I should have had, maybe I should have had. We don't always have the same compassion, do we? The same pity for others. Compassion simply means 
it's a pity, pity is a good word, for, for someone else, for others. So he went over to the beer, which is like a, just a stretcher or a cheap kind of a casket probably, or a coffin, more like a cheap coffin. And there he, t- he spoke to the young man. He said, young man, arise. Can you imagine what that would be like? Someone raises from the coffin, sits up, and it said, there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that was a great prophet. And this rumor spread, and the people talked about it, about this Jesus, this tremendous, this very important prophet, how he raised this young man to life. <clears throat> The widow lost her only son. Her heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. The Lord did what he could. These are a few lessons from this. The Lord did what he could. He came in fear upon everyone. They respected God. There was respect for God. God deserves glory. You notice this? There was a glorified God. God deserves glory when a dead sinner is brought back to life, and they glorified God. Do our actions today, do we bring glory to God as well? Now, Compassion, I already said, is pity or sorrow aroused by suffering or misfortunes of others. Sometimes others have misfortune. Are we compassionate with those that have misfortune? Jesus had compassion. And two weeks ago in our Sunday school, exactly two weeks today, we studied uh, in Matthew 14, 14. We saw how the multitude, Jesus saw the multitude and was moved with compassion. He healed the sick. Next Sunday in chapter 15, the latter part of 15, we'll be studying about the 4,000 he fed. It tells us there that Jesus had compassion on them. And he fed the 4,000. In chapter 20, which is coming a few months later, we have the two months or so later, we have the two blind men by the wayside. And Jesus had compassion on these blind men. He touched their eyes and he healed them. And then later, we also have the leper. Jesus was had compassion on this man, he put forth his hand and touched the leper. And of course, we know about the Good Samaritan, had compassion as well, and the prodigal son, the father had compassion. It tells us he ran, he saw the son, he had compassion, he ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. Those are just some illustrations of of compassion. A miracle is something that cannot be explained by natural laws. Now, I've been using uh, William Barclay's commentaries for a number of years, but I'm kind of uh, upset at William Barclay. kind of mad at him, actually. Somebody said he should be spanked. Well, William Barclay's not living anymore. He died in 1978. He, was, he died in 78. He was born in 07, so he was 71 years old. And you're looking at him right here, a 71-year-old. Anyway, William Barclay said this in his commentary. He was very, very good on Jewish history. Tremendous on Jewish history. Had good, commenta- good, com- good comments on the customs of the Jewish people and in their traditions, and all about the Jewish people. But William Barclay was very, very weak on miracles. For instance, just the other Sunday, we studied about Jesus walking on the water, and Peter walked on the water. Is that hard for you to believe? It's not hard for me to believe that, but Barclay says he doesn't understand that. He said he thinks maybe there was an illusion. They were close to the shore and they looked out there and they just thought he was walking on the water. 
It was an illusion. You see, he should be spanked, right? That's so ridiculous. Why, would there, why couldn't he walk in the water? Of course he can walk in the water. I think C.J. alluded to that earlier. God can do anything. He created the water. He created the earth. Why couldn't you walk on it? Now, in Genesis 18, this is a bit of follow-up here. Please don't turn to it because I have a question for you. And if you turn to it, you know the answer. But in Genesis 18, there's a story about the three angels that came, the three men of God who came to Abraham and Sarah. Remember the story. And they told Sarah she's going to have a baby. Sarah said, actually, she laughed. Sarah said, I'm an old lady. I'm way past childbearing. Can't have a baby. And look at the, look at the man over here. He's an old man. We can't have any children. They laughed. <clears throat> when she laughed, what, the question is, what did the angel of the Lord say or ask them? Does anyone know without looking? Thank you. Is there, good question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Of course not. No, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Why would there be? The question, is anything too hard? It's a wonderful question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You see what I'm saying about the commentator? Trying to figure out some way that Jesus actually didn't walk in the water. Of course he could easily. And Peter could too. Now let me read the German for you. And excuse me if you don't understand German. That's okay, I'll translate it for you. But the German has another question. The German says, listen carefully if you're Dutch. Sollte dem Herrn etwas unmöglich sein. And that's, that's twisted grammar that's difficult to understand. But Sollte dem Herrn etwas unmöglich sein. <clears throat> what is unmöglich? Anyone? Impossible. impossible. The question is, is there anything impossible? Is there something impossible for God? No, there's nothing impossible. The rich man... After, about the rich man being saved, you know, God said, was, the question was asked about this rich man, God said, well, all things are possible with God. All things are possible. There was a healing of the demonic son, and they wondered about that, and Jesus said, well, all things are possible to him that believes. In Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Take away this cup. It's possible. All things are possible. Another question of what about the rich man entered the kingdom of heaven? How do you understand that? Well, they said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I'm going to conclude, conclude here with a story that we experienced as a family, which is, I think, a miracle. Now, I missed one part here on the word miracle. The Germans don't have a word for miracle. If you look up miracle and try to find a word for miracle, there is none as such. What is it? Well, in German, they talk about an ein Wunder. Das ist ein Wunder. It's a wonder. It's a wonder. It's amazing. It's a wonder. There's signs in the, in the English you read about Signs and wonders. In German, it's Zeichen und Wundern. Zeichen would be a sign. A Wundern would be a wonder or, yes, a wonder. Anyway, we experienced, I guess you would say, a wonder or a miracle. 
And I'm going to go back to the year 2007, and that's a little over 10 years ago, when Maddie was coming back from Ukraine with David. David was only seven years old in 2007, in December. And Maddie had been there about three months and was eager to return back to the States to home. Some of you heard this story before, but I don't think many of you did. I wish Maddie would come up and tell it. She would be a much better storyteller, <laughs> much better storyteller than I, but it might take a little longer, too. I don't know. Time's running out, so maybe I can do it in 10 minutes. But she's a very, very good storyteller when you get her started. <clears throat> so she and David were at the airport in Kiev, Ukraine. Some of you, some of you have been there. It's, so they thought they were ready to go, and so they went, walked up to the officer, to the uh, passport control, where you have to go through and see that everything's in order. So here was this little boy, seven years old. What's going on here? You have to have paper for, papers for him. Well, yes, we have the paperwork. So she gave him the paperwork, and he looked through it, and he said there's one thing missing. You don't have the adoption decree. It's a document that you need. Well, she thought she had everything. I said, you can't, you can't go. You just can't go. Because you don't have the adoption decree. So she stepped back and started thinking and, you know, didn't have a cell phone because the, mi <clears throat> the missionaries took her cell phone along. They're already gone. You know how it is. You go to the airport. You can't be there. They're already gone with her cell phone. And there's no money. They took her. U Ukrainian money because she's not going to use any Ukrainian money here. So she has no money and no phone. And standing there and there's a huge wall. No way you can't get through this wall. You don't have the proper paper. The top adoption decree. She thought she did. <clears throat> so what do you do? One thing you can do and that's pray, isn't it? So she backed up and she prayed. And prayed and prayed some more. And she got the feeling that she needs to go back to this man again. You know, the, the officer that she talked to. That's sitting in a little booth over here. And they're not very accommodating these men, if you know anything about Russia. How many have been to Ukraine? Probably a few of us have. They're not really very accommodating. So she didn't want to go back to this man, but she, the Lord told her that uh, she has to go back to him and see what she can do. He went back to her, just like over there. Sir, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. I, you know, I'm stuck here. I don't know what to do. <clears throat> well, he said maybe he could take her to another room and with, the, with the papers she had. So he came out and reluctantly, of course, took her on a little walk over to some other uh, office where there were more officials, more officers. And as they were going there, another man came from the side. And he said, I think you're having a problem. Can I, can I help you? And this man spoke perfect American English. Are you catching on? Yeah, perfect American English. That doesn't happen in those, for those officers. They don't speak perfect American English. And he had nice, clear eyes. But he also had some pimples. I didn't know angels had pimples, but... He had a few pimples on his face. <clears throat> well, he said, you come with me and we'll see what we can do. So he took her into uh, 
a room. He kind of took over this other man, of course, was happy to you know, pass her off to somebody else so he can go back to his work. So this, um, this man, we'll just call him a man. By now you know he's probably an angel, but I don't know. So this man took her to another room with the, uh, more officers. And what, they went into that room, and David immediately started messing around. He kind of a, has lots of uh, abilities with his fingers, David does. And so he started flipping switches on the wall. Can you, can you imagine being in this room with officers? And he starts playing with the switches. Seven-year-old boy. Well, that was just kind of, you know, whatever. All that did, I don't know. Anyway, after a while, this man said, well, he took her out again. And maybe, maybe it's in your suitcases. Maybe it's downstairs. You know, the suitcase is already gone. They're down there somewhere loaded up, ready to go out to the plane. Maybe this adoption decree, this document is there. We'll go down and look. And when they were there, they found their suitcases, of course. They were at a place that you don't very often see. Here were these old trolleys, these old carts, loaded up with suitcases, and there were her few suitcases. Oh, we, they pulled them out and still couldn't find the adoption decree. And the man said, you know, we really shouldn't be in here. We have to hurry. We really shouldn't be in here. Let's get out. Let's get out. Well, they went back up again. <clears throat> and the man said... Give me all your papers. You know, there was a number of things, not just the adoption decree. That's just one document. Give me your papers, and I'll, you know, take another little somewhere and see what we can do. After about five or ten minutes, he came back, and he said, he said, follow me. Just follow me. And they walked right through the, secure, right through the passport control. He was, of course, dressed as an officer. Went right through there and right through the, security, and went out to the uh, concourse and to the gate and got on, you, of course, you know, just in time, right? That's usually what happens. Just in time, the doors were closed. <clears throat> she looked around, and the man left, kind of waved a little bit, I guess. I don't know. I don't know if he was an angel, but he wasn't an angel for her, wasn't he? He was an angel for her. There was a huge wall there, no way to get through. Is anything too hard for the Lord? There's nothing impossible with the Lord. That's not the end. I have a few minutes yet, don't I? Not quite the end. So they're on this airplane, and now she thinks, oh, you know what? We're going to get to New York City. I'm going to have to have this, this paper, this decree. Well, on this plane, there was a lot, of, a lot more children like David who were adopted. I'm not sure how this all happened, but there were a number of other adoptees on this plane, and there were some problems. In fact, the one child cried almost the whole way home. Can you imagine being on an airplane when a child screams, well, cries, let's say, most of the way, because it was adopted. It was completely out of its comfort zone, and David and Maddie tried to help these people a little bit with this child, and so it turned out to be kind of a special thing you know, with all these adoptees on this plane. When they got to New York City, the pilot himself took a number of these people said, you know, follow me, I'm going to take you through because he realized they were completely stressed out, this was very difficult. And they, again, the pilot took them through without a lot of ado. Well, we were waiting in Philadelphia and we didn't, you know, we didn't know anything about this. That would have been sad if we'd have been waiting there and Maddie and David wouldn't have showed up. Where is she? What happened? Well, eventually we would have found out, of course, but 
So there they arrived in Philadelphia. This was in 2007, December. We went home, and then, of course, sometime later, Maddie got out these papers again and thought, she's going to look for this decree again because we're going to need it. We're going to need it again because David needs a social security number. We'll need a few other things. We need this decree. And so she took out those papers and laid them out, and sure enough, there it was. We're not sure. It's a mystery today. It's a mystery today. Where was this adoption decree? All this time, but there it was. It showed up. The question to ask Abraham and Sarah was, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? There's nothing, is there, too hard for the Lord? <laughs> 